Hey friends, thank you so much for joining. I wanted to give you a little scoop, heads up. This is a pretty raw and very open discussion about our guests' challenges with mental health and very detailed descriptions of suicide. So if this is something that may trigger you, just know that this conversation is coming up and it's getting deep. Also, please know You are not alone if you are suffering. Please don't do that in silence. There are resources available for you. And if you are in the U.S., you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255. In Canada, 24-7-1833-456-4566. And for all our friends in Australia, 13 Eleven fourteen is how you can find the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week lifeline crisis support. Welcome to the Recovery Hour podcast, where we choose to recover out loud by sharing our personal stories of inspiration, hope, and triumph. Together, we can end the stigma and shame typically tied to mental illness and the disease of addiction. We are proof that recovery does happen. Joy and laughter may be involved. This is the Recovery Hour with Lori Winfeld. Welcome to the Recovery Hour. This is your host, Lori Windfeld. Thank you for joining us for another amazing episode. Today, we are highlighting a very special person that I have met through She Recovers. Her name is Sarah Gray Perez. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Lori. Great to be here. So glad for you to be here. Since I've reached out to Sarah after hearing her amazingly touching story, you have been going, girl. (laughs) You have been going and I have been a shit show. So (laughs) here we are. Thank you so much for working with the schedule and thank you so much for um, joining us tonight. So like I said earlier, Sarah and I met through the women's group called She Recovers. And as most of my listeners know, I am a volunteer host and I am also a She Recovers designated coach. And with that, I get to meet hundreds of amazing women. And Sarah's story just touched me to the soul when she shared her experience a few months back. And so I invited her on the show so we can continue to get the word out about mental health, mental illness, co-occurring disorders. And we're going to listen to Sarah's story about her several attempts at suicide. That's a little intro. Sarah, I'll let you start wherever you'd like to, whatever you're comfortable with. And um, again, thank you so much. I know this is a really vulnerable topic, but as you said, and as I feel, the world needs to hear more of this. So hi, I'm Sarah Gray Perez. So let's start off with some good things. Um, I just celebrated nine months sober. Amazing. So amazing. And you know, it's such a great feeling. And when you have the nine months of sobriety that I've had, it's such a different feeling, you know, that pure, like hard worked for sobriety, not that you did for anybody else, but you, it's just like, it's so different than that, you know, nine months where you just kind of went to meetings and did whatever because people told you to do it. It's, it's so good. It's 
such a good feeling. And I just moved uh, back in with my husband of 16 years and my 13-year-old son who I've been separated from for four and a half years. And that also was something that I never thought was going to happen. And that too is a blessing that comes with sobriety and a lot of hard work. But, uh, you know, let's talk about what I had to do to get here. So I met you actually a little bit over a year ago. So January 20th of 2020 was the end of a very long, long struggle with uh, just, it was the end of a long time. Uh, my husband and I had been separated for four years at that point. I was living with a man that I just wasn't happy with. I was dealing with mental illness that I wasn't dealing with. Um, I had severe trauma from childhood situations that were horrifying that no kids should ever have gone through. And um, I decided that I just, I couldn't live anymore. Um, and so I, uh, I, at that point I had been suicide drinking, um, which to me was uh, a gallon of tequila a day. And that just, it wasn't working. I was sick. I'd been to five detoxes in four years. I'd been to four inpatient rehabs in four years. And that was all because, you know, I would decide like, hey, maybe I should stop. But my will to live just wasn't there. It, it just what there was nothing, no reason for me to, to, to want to get better. I mean, that I, I didn't love myself enough to want to get better. I wasn't with my husband and son. I just I my my family was dying. I lost my mom, my dad, and both sets of grandparents within those four years too. So I was completely alone. So on January 20th, I went in my bedroom and um, I, I took almost 600 pills and a bottle of Bacardi and I laid down and um, I went to sleep. And uh, I, I have a do not resuscitate in my will. And Apparently that was ignored and, and thank God now to this day, like now I'm grateful, but I'll tell you, um, I was in a, in a very close to death coma for five days. And during those five days, my husband, who I, I was still married to, we never got divorced, had been posting on Facebook, these posts with my updates, um, on how I was doing. And a woman in the She Recovers group, Pamela, had seen my my husband's posts and she reached out to the group and asked for the women to pray for me. And they did. Uh, a lot of women, strangers, began to pray for me. And miraculously, I woke up. My husband had gone through grief counseling. There was really no hope for me. And, and if I did wake up, I was. they didn't believe I was going to be able to take care of myself talk, you know, feed myself. And, um, but I woke up and I was very, very angry um, when I woke up and I came back with the same facilities that I have right now, you know, talking and, you know, at that point I wasn't really a big believer in anything, but that changed a lot of my idea in just, you know, energy and prayer and humanity. Um, so uh, after after I came out of that coma, you know, I reached out to the She Recovers group and Pamela, and I'm still very close to her. And I made a decision that um, I wanted to 
try one more time. And that was the promise that I made to myself. I'm going to try one more time to get better for myself, not for anybody else this time, just for myself. And, you know, the thing with ending your life is it's kind of like alcohol. The the bar will always be there, <laughs> you know, um, the option to end my life will always be there. Um, the chance to do something about it and make your life better will not always be there. So I did. I, I tried again. I, I went to another detox uh, and I went to another inpatient rehab and I completed that. And then I did something different. I decided on my own to go to sober living, even though I had an apartment. And I did that. The boyfriend that I had been living with, we broke up. I went to sober living. I did that for seven months. And in the course of that, my husband and I started doing counseling. I got proper treatment for my mental health diagnosis. I started doing trauma therapy with the clinical director of my inpatient rehab. And, you know, I started doing marriage counseling with my husband. So we started it. We all started working on things and slowly but surely it all started coming together in ways that I never thought was possible. At one point in my life, I was on nine different psychiatric medications. I'm now on two. I've, I've also had nine back procedures. I suffer from degenerative spine disorder. That was a big part of my, in my decision to end my life. When you wake up every day in pain and the doctors told you, you're just going to have to live with it. And when you have physical pain and mental pain and emotional pain and, you know, all this pain and, and you think that alcohol is, is helping it, but it just makes it worse. You really don't feel like there's anywhere to go. So uh, with that being said, I just want people to know that there's always another chance. I, I strongly believe now that if you just take a nap, things get a little bit better when you wake up. <laughs> Yes. You know. Naps are good. 600 pills and a no. bottle of Bacardi bag. No, exactly. Oh, I'm so glad that you were prayed for, that you were held, that you were able to find worth in your life because you are a gift to so many. And I appreciate that you are here and able to tell your story and there are so many people that have go gone through and are going through that. And to be on the other side of knowing someone or loving someone to know that they feel their life is so worthless that they just want to end it could be one of the saddest things I've ever heard. And how do you react to that when you've never felt that way? And I think that's something that's so important for the world to know is clearly something inside of you wasn't right. Something inside of you is telling you that you shouldn't be here. And I wonder with that, you mentioned a few things uh, that I, I did want to question in just for information is you mentioned co-occurring disorder, did mention that you worked on your addiction and sobriety, and then also a mental health diagnosis. Are you open to talking about what those were? Absolutely. So um, as far as uh, mental diagnoses go, I was originally as a kid, um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and then when I was 18, that was changed to 
borderline personality disorder, PTSD, and dissociative disorder. And that is because when they will not, first of all, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as borderline personality disorder. And also they will not diagnose anybody under the age of 18 with borderline personality disorder because they feel that uh, they that you're not done maturing. So they can't put a diagnosis on it and they're starting to change that school of thought. And I think that's for the best because with borderline, it's definitely something that comes on during puberty and it's much better dealt with if it's caught earlier. Borderline is like bipolar on crack. It is so horrible. So for you as a child, as a teen, it was originally bipolar. And then as you grew up, they decided borderline personality. So did you notice a difference in your behavior or your life in, hey, today they told me it was bipolar. Tomorrow they told me it was borderline. Like, can you tell the differences? Huge. Um, When they gave me my borderline, it was like a light bulb went off. And, and Also, let me preface that by saying when my doctor at the time, and thank God for him, he was this guy named Doug, and he was this older gentleman, and he had been doing research into borderline, and he brought me and my husband in, and this was right after I had um, just had my son. They had been like discussing it, discussing it, and then I had just had my son. I was in treatment. And uh, he was like, you know, Sarah, we really think you're born. So, oh, let me go back. So I wasn't re-diagnosed as borderline when I was 18. They will not re-diagnose you until you're after 18. I wasn't diagnosed with borderline until after I'd had my son. They said, Sarah, we think that you're borderline, not bipolar. We don't believe that you were ever bipolar. So they said, we don't want to give you borderline diagnosis, because we want to let you know what that entails. When we change your diagnosis to borderline, no doctors are going to want to treat you. It's very highly stigmatized. You're not going to find another therapist. People run away from you. It's like the most like feared diagnosis to have. And I'm like, well, why? And they're like, well, because you're kind of seen as like the most difficult patient to work with. I said, but you know, that's like living a lie. Like if I can't have the proper diagnosis that allows me to get the help that I need, then what good am I going to be doing? Right. They, he also said, there's no medication that's going to help you. You're going to continue down this merry-go-round, which I had already been doing for years. At that point, I was 26. So I had carried the diagnosis of bipolar since I was 12. So that's 14 years of medications, medications that made me sleep. I gained a hundred pounds and lost a hundred pounds three times in my life already. I had already had at that point, five suicide attempts by the time I was 26. I had just had my son. I was going through extreme depression. All I did was cry all the time. And I said, well, what is the help? And he, he said, you just have to go through therapy. Like that's all there really is for borderline. It's just therapy. And I said, okay. So they changed it. And he was right. Therapists did not want to work with me because the difference between borderline and bipolar is with borderline, you have extremely volatile relationships with people. You are extremely fearful of 
becoming close to people because of the trauma that you suffered as a child. It's like all you crave is love. But when you get love, you push it away because you're so terrified of of them leaving you. You have severe abandonment issues. You have you have this extreme black and white thinking like everything is either good or everything's bad. You're constantly waiting for shoes to drop in your life. You live in this constant fear. It is horrible. Just horrible. I had I have to, I still to this day have terrible trust issues with women, which is why she recovers is so great because like, you know, I just being in that group when I woke up from my coma and I saw like all these women, I was like, what is this? Like, what kind of joke is this? Like, <laughs> this is like the fakest thing in the whole world. Um, it's the weirdest <laughs> thing. And we've talked about that. A lot of the women have trust issues with other women or have, you know, I always say it's so funny. I was like, I was always one of the guys as I grew Mm -hmm. up and I never understood why other than being attracted to them. um, I never understood why, like I wanted to hang out with them so much. And I realized, of course, as growing up that I had been deceived and, you know, lied to and, and just had bad relationships with women in my life that I didn't realize I was not even going to find people in that same sex because of the trauma that I experienced with women in exactly. my life. It's insanity. I know. I know. All right. Uh, oh my gosh. So you, all of this is like, I can't because there's so much and I could be here with you for five yeah. hours. Okay. So you, how many, how many suicide attempts? Okay. So January 20th made my ninth, what was my ninth and final, <laughs> my ninth and final. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in recovery from suicide attempts. Uh, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, now, was your husband, were you with your husband for the other eight? I was with him for, uh, well, so my first suicide attempt was when I was seven. Oh my gosh, Sarah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's another thing. Like there are a lot of children that actually like have suicidal actions and like suicidal thoughts and express suicidality and are swept under the rug. And what I want to say is we should never discount children for expressing that because especially now in the society that we live in with social media and everything, it's becoming a lot more prevalent than it was when I was a kid. I mean, I was an anomaly. There weren't a lot of kids my age, like expressing that they were depressed or whatever. I, mm-hmm. I was in a severe abuse situation where I felt that was my only way out. Unfortunately, there wasn't like a whole lot of child services going on when I was a kid. But do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I tried to hang myself. My grandmother found me. She was an emergency room nurse. So she cut me down and she uh, brought me back. And that was it. They took me. They took me. But started after that. I mean, I was seven. And then there was another one when I was 13. And then when I was 15. And then when I was 18. And then when I was 21. When I was 25. And then there were two back to back after I had my son. And then... Wow. Yeah. There. I mean, and then after I had my son, the two back to back were just out of extreme fear that I was going to be like my mother. Mm. And, you know, that was a horrible thought to have because unfortunately, when I went into 
the hospital because I was starting to have some depression issues. And so I went into psychiatric to have them change my medications. And I said, you know what, maybe I need to talk to somebody about the trauma that I suffered as a kid. I made the mistake of, of telling the wrong practitioner. And, and the first thing out of that doctor's mouth was, have you ever inappropriately touched your child? And that was it. That shut me down for another. I didn't talk about it again for another four years. So that's also like, you know, the whole. What was the point in that? Exactly. I mean, I don't. I, yeah. Well, also another big reason why I don't. Um, I don't tend to see male therapists ever, <laughs> which is a shame because there are a lot of really great male therapists, and I've had a lot of really good uh, relationships with male therapists. It's just you know. Yeah. You got to find what makes what works for you. Exactly. You know, back to the co-occurring disorders, like we were, we were saying earlier, I come from a place where when I was initially deciding to get sober back when I was 18, I went into rehab for the first time. It was also a stigma to be on any type of psychiatric medication. If you were Mm -hmm. attending any type of 12 steps, 12 step group. So, um, and you just didn't talk about any type of mental health issues. So was your, what we, you know, what we in recovery call drug of choice. So was your addiction to alcohol it was initially to cocaine Okay, for a long time. And was that something you were able to talk about in your meetings? But no, right. I mean, I feel like it was just the one thing that you could talk about and then everything else was don't Especially bring it up. back then. It was like either you went to one or you went to the other. So now that you have nine months of continuous sobriety, how are you coping? That has to be something that is new to you, considering how many times you've been in and out of rehabs, detox, what do we call them? Treatment centers. You know, you've had a lifelong battle with suicide, with alcohol, with loving yourself. What has changed? Where are you now in your mind that that this is different? So I don't talk about this a lot, but when I was in my coma, um, the year before my suicide attempt, my little brother, who actually also just celebrated a year of sobriety, he was a heroin addict. He also suffered a lot of the same trauma that I suffered when we were children. He uh, he and I were talking. I was still drinking at the time. And um, I said, hey, um, did you ever tell dad about what happened to us? Because my my dad was, was not aware of what had occurred to us when we were kids. Or so we thought, like, we just thought he didn't know. And he said, no. And I said, well, I'm going to tell him. And my brother said, don't, don't do that, Sarah. Like, don't do that. And I said, no, I think, I think he needs to know. And, uh, yeah, he was like, that's probably not a great idea. Like, you know, and you know, I was drunk and, you know, you do a lot of stupid things when you're drinking. And, uh, I called my dad who lived in Arizona and I told him what had happened to us when we were kids. And two weeks later he killed himself. Um, Two weeks before Christmas. Um, Sarah. Yeah. So my brother was a little angry and 
then he was like, well, you know, he was looking for an excuse and yeah, he was, it was not great. Uh, I kept drinking (laughs) obviously. And so he killed himself in December of, yeah, of 2018. I had my suicide attempt in January of 2020. Um, so when I went into my coma, I had almost zero brain activity. And when I was in my coma, I saw my dad and, um, he asked me if I wanted to die. And I said, yeah, I, I don't want to do this anymore, dad. And he said, well, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. And, um, I saw, um, what was going to happen to my son if I died. And, um, I couldn't in good conscience uh, allow my pain affect my child in the way that if that was real, if it was imagined, if it was what my brain thought would happen, I couldn't even take that chance of that allowing of that happening. So I think that's also a big reason why I woke up as well. Um, And my kid's doing great now. He was, he was not doing great before and he's doing fantastic. So that's a big reason why I'm doing better. Wow. Sometimes you have to, you know, when you bring a kid into this world, like you give up all rights to yourself, (laughs) you know, and and you kind (laughs) of forget that. Like I was very selfish for a long time, you know, but at that moment, like, you know, I just, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't. Um, I, I get a lot of notifications every day of people that I was in treatment with dying. I went to Mm. 27 like funerals in 2019 of people that had OD'd that I was in rehab with, um, because I've been to 23 treatments in my life. So I know a lot of people, (laughs) um, but it's just, uh, yeah, I'm not going to let that happen to my kid. Um, so here I am. And oh I, I tried really hard. And that's also a big reason why I went back to treatment. Um, because I have to be a good example to him. Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. And how old is he now? 13. Oh my gosh. So that puts him in eighth yeah. grade. Wow. Yeah. That's I just my mind is blown. I'm sitting here thinking it's it's hard not to put yourself, well, at least for someone like me, because I'm super empathetic and like, oh my God, I wonder how that really felt. And so now I'm feeling it all, which is why I'm sort of processing because I'm like, when you were talking about being seven, I mean, I have a seven-year-old at home and I just immediately want to go home and just hold her right now. Yeah. Well, my, my son, when he was seven came out of his room and he like, he was upset about something and he was like, I'm just going to suicide myself. And I'm like, mm. you don't even know what that word means, but they know what that, the connotation mm-hmm. is. They know what the idea of that is. They just don't know as a child, you don't understand the finality of it. That's the difference. You just, at that point, you just want the pain to end. You don't understand that it's the end of everything. As an adult, you understand the implications of everything. As a child, you don't. Uh, so. But I, the, the, the thing is, is that I, I just don't think that people know how to react to people that are exhibiting signs of depression, of, mm-hmm. you know, of sadness, people run away from that. And I don't, 
know if it's because people are scared that it's like a catching disease, you know, or um, <laughs> it's contagious. It's, Look yeah, out. Like I, I'm going to get it. Um, but I, yeah. you know, people have to be more empathetic, especially in the world that we're living in now. There's so much bad stuff going on now. Yeah. You know, the worst thing that you can do is like turn a blind eye to somebody that's suffering. Well, and that's a, a great point too, is, is there are a lot of people suffering in silence because they're afraid to talk. Yeah. They're afraid to say, or not just the judgment, but the reactions is how, how is someone going to understand? And I mean, I know that you, you have a lifelong journey that you've gone through. And for me, it's been five years of sobriety and probably way more years of recovery in that I've been trying to figure out what's wrong with me when it comes to my emotion and realizing that I have had extreme anxiety and have gone into extreme bouts of depression through my life and incorrectly took prescription drugs <laughs> and not to feel a high, but just to say, oh shit, it's been four days since I took my anti-whatever and, right. um, or I'm going to have a bottle of wine, even though I took my medicine, you know, like, I feel like there's so many of us that are uninformed and what is lovely about people like us is that we can come together and have these type of very vulnerable conversations and share them with whoever would like to listen <laughs> to, to know that, um, you know, n n not everybody's normal. <laughs> first of all, <laughs> embrace your crazy. Yeah. I always love to say that, right? Like, let's, let's go, let's go, let's figure it out. You never know what anybody's struggling with. You never know, oh. you know, the person that's yelling at the grocery store because they're pissed off about something could have easily just lost their, their spouse, you know, or their parent, their child. Exactly. They could easily not know what the hell they're doing because they're in a different world because they have a disorder that, that you're unaware of. And they're just trying to live their life by walking to the grocery store and buying a couple fucking apples, you know, like <laughs> yeah. uh, just let them be. Um, yeah. Wow. That was a lot, Sarah. I, um, I just am almost speechless, which is so weird because this is a podcast and we kind of have to keep talking. Ah. Um, <laughs> but I just feel so proud of you. And, um, I think that sometimes that's an asshole thing to say because you really have to be in a, a, a world of respect between two people. And, and, you know, you, I, you know, I'm not like, I don't feel that I'm someone in your life that you know, I have to have respect from, but w what I'm saying is just knowing as another woman, how difficult that being diagnosed with mental illness, having an addiction going to a treatment center, even once in my life, I recognized that that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I can't imagine having gone through that multiple times. And even that, having the idea of not being successful and then doing it again. And again, and again, and again. And again. Yeah. And then where does that create another, you know, train of, of emotion mm -hmm. of, like you said earlier, you're not good enough um, or you didn't love yourself enough. And um, I'm just so glad to hear that you you heard the message from your dad. You saw the message that was potentially your son's life should you not be here. And nine months is huge. It's huge. It's every day waking up saying, I am going to live and I'm going to 
not drink. Well, when you come from a place of every day waking up and going, why am I opening my eyes? Like, what is this day for? And what can I get my hands on that'll just make me close my eyes again? Waking up now and like being excited (laughs) to like get up and do things and like, hey, like, the dollar store makes me so excited. <laughs> I'm like, yes! yes, let's go to the dollar store. Like I'm, you know, I just moved back home. So like now I'm in the process of like renovating everything because my husband turned it into a man cave. Um, <laughs> you know, this like gets me so excited. Um, you know, just little things are just, I feel like I was reborn and like, I'm just starting to figure out who I am. Yes. And that's an amazing, beautiful thing. Before I used to have a joke, like every time I'd go into treatment, they'd be like, so what are your hobbies? And I'd be like, huh? (laughs) You know, like, what are you talking about hobbies? Like, I don't know who I am. Like, that's a joke. Now I'm like, now I can tell you like what my hobbies are. I'm like, Hey, you want to hear about my hobbies? Like, (laughs) so I like this author and I like to read this and I like to write this. And you know, that's great. I'm like, I'm kind of a person now. Um, I'm Mm. not just like this shell of like death and despair and like wanting to die all the time. And, you know, I'm like shitting on everybody's parade all the time. (laughs) This is like fantastic. Um, And I thought for a long time that that was my identity, Mm -hmm. that my identity was just, you know, on the outside, I wore like such a mask. Um, I was on the PTA. I was doing all this stuff. And then at night I was doing a bunch of cocaine and, you know, doing, I lived a double life because that's also a part of borderline is um, impulse control and keeping secrets. And my traumatic childhood taught me how to keep secrets really well. So that's been a part of me too. It's like being able to let go of my secrets and live like a, you know, authentic life where everybody knows everything. That's why this is great. Like letting this out because it's part of my treatment. It's like I started over again. Unfortunately, I'm like 42. I'm not 20. That would have been great. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like it's the new thing. I feel like as a woman in her 40s, I realized that I didn't know shit. I don't know who that person was. And I am definitely loving exploring this person that's unearthing herself. Like what's happening here? You know, it's, it's good. I think it's great to be in a place that you can start questioning why, (laughs) why were the, you know, why did we do the things that we did that didn't make us happy? You know, I talk about this a lot is the, one of my favorite things now is being able to say no. And I've really gotten good at it. Right. (laughs) And yeah. And I just am like, I am not ever going to be in the place where I'm going to continue to make people comfortable while I'm then suffering and uncomfortable. Right. I mean, why? Why? Why are we going to do this? Yeah, great. I'm I'm so glad that that your friend is now comfortable that I've changed everything about me. <laughs> I'm glad we're going to this particular place that gives me the heebie-jeebies mm. because everybody else wanted to go there. No, you guys have fun. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit back here and enjoy myself. Mm-hmm. Love you, bud. <laughs> So now you're home, mm-hmm. you are reunited with the hubs and with the sun. Mm-hmm. You're turning the man cave into a home for the three of you. Yeah. And what's next for you? So what's next is, um, 
you know, I don't know. I think I'm going to get things settled around here. Keep working on my recovery. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully this COVID thing will end soon. I'll start, you know, I'd like to work with animals, get back to working with the shelters. Yeah. Awesome. And, uh, you know, do some stuff that helps my heart. For sure. Heart work is the best work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one of the things we always do at the end of the show, I ask my guest if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh gosh. Well, I'm going to (laughs) cry. I wish I would have known this was coming. It would, uh, it would be my, um, cat Bach, um, (laughs) who, uh, was actually one of the casualties of the past three years. He was, um, I came home from treatment and he was uh, he was the final one to go. He uh, was 21 years old, and I had to put him to sleep two days after I got out of treatment. And he's oh. my best friend. Um, I have my paw prints on him, um, oh, but he is dead, and that's too. who I would bring back. Um, oh gosh, Bach for dinner. Mm, he'll Bach come home for dinner. He yeah. would. He'd eat some cheese. Um, <laughs> but before we go, I just. Uh, before we do go, Lori, uh, I just want to say that um, if anybody is suffering and having suicidal thoughts, the suicide hotline phone number is 1-800-273-8255. Um, also, uh, information for uh, mental illness is uh, NAMI.org. That's N-A-M-I.org. And their helpline number is 1-800-950-6264. They are great. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Amazing. Thank you so much. And yes, the numbers that Sarah just mentioned are U.S. numbers. So those of our international, please look online. You can Google it yourself really quick or ask Siri or ask whoever who speaks to you in Australia. I don't Mm -hmm. know. (laughs) Is it Siri or do they have a different name? We're gonna, I'm gonna have to check. I'm gonna have to check that out. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I know that you have so much going on, and you just came home, and I'm so happy for you. And uh, really feel honored that you took time to tell your story. And for our listeners, please, please, please help us continue to spread the word and mm-hmm. normalize this conversation: co-occurring disorders, mental illness, suicide thoughts, suicide. It's real. It happens. Sarah is proof mm-hmm. and yeah. I'm, and I'm the pudding proofs in the pudding. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how any of that works, but mm. okay. Thank you so much for your time. Yes. Thanks Lori. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovery Hour podcast. Successful podcasts equal subscribers and good ratings. Please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. To learn more about me, your host, Lori Windfell, jump on over to therecoveryhour.com. Here you'll find information on my coaching and speaking practices, as well as information on guests of the show. If you're still listening to this and you haven't subscribed to my mom yet, what are you doing? You're lame. So go do it right now. All right, all right. Calm down. Sorry about that. He's just really excited for this to be successful since I been spending all of my free time on this project and not with him. While you aren't lame, as my son suggests, I would really appreciate a few minutes of your time to subscribe. While it doesn't seem like much, it really does help my goal in spreading the word of recovery. Until next time, let's continue to inspire, live, and give.